This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. Uh, we have a great show lined up today. A lot of interesting news, kind of some scattershot stuff as well. So first thing we'll chat about, um, interesting airline scam. I mean, not this is this is not aerospace engineering news, but a... Alan, I'm curious to hear your your thoughts on how this happened when we get to it in a second. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, Airbus, their up next uh, wing project, uh, business sales, which not only continue to recover, but are, are really booming with the biggest um, business sales recorded since 2008. Uh, we'll talk about Rolls-Royce uh, winning the contract to power the B-52 Stratofortress. That's the legendary Air Force bomber. And we'll talk about a, a you know a tragedy over in Russia. An AN twenty six crashed recently into it looks like a mountain range. And we'll talk a little bit about older airplanes and whether is that really a safety concern, the age of the plane, or is it really um, these older models have just the same tried and true safety record as any other? Uh, I have some questions for Alan about that. In our EVTOL segment, we'll talk about Bell, which will be on display their EVTOL model, their prototype in the Smithsonian in Washington D.C. Right down. Uh, the street for me coming up soon. So pretty cool that they're starting to feature some of the future technology at the Smithsonian as they reopen the castle, quote unquote. Uh, we'll talk about Airbus's re-entry to the EVTOL space and a recent agreement between EVE, which is Embraer's EVTOL arm, and Bristow. So Alan, this scam, let's start here because I'm I'm curious how, there's no information on how this actually happened, but two men uh, have been charged with stealing $550,000 over a like a six-year scheme from airlines, basically just reporting false lost luggage that they would take a flight uh, under a false name, land, uh, have, no, have no check bags, land, and then submit a claim that they lost their luggage for $3,500, and then just get a, get a check. Now, one of the reports I read about this, said that it was an intricate scheme, but I saw no evidence in the articles themselves that it's, I mean, it has to be intricate in some way, but they didn't give any details. So I'm really fascinated to know how they pulled this off so many times, like 180 times they took these airlines for almost $4,000. Alan, I mean, how did you feel like this worked? I'm just really curious what the, well, how this went down. I don't know, unless they had somebody on the inside, which, which, but they they hit almost every airline in America with the same scam, which makes me think it must be a more universal kind of scam. They can't be the first ones who thought it up, but they definitely hit it for its maximum because they hit it for over a half million dollars over a couple of year period. I think they're making about a hundred k a year with this little process. And the, the 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 weird thing is like, did they not check in bags? And then say that they were lost. Like, how do you how do you go to the counter and say, "I lo- you you lost my bags. Here is my receipt for the bag." And then, like, where does the receipt seems like the missing link that they didn't mention in the article? That's what I'm curious. Like, did someone falsify receipts for them? Because that would make a lot more sense if they got a luggage tag, even though they never checked a bag. That would make sense. But and you know what? That's a very interesting point. 
you know, in today's world, you could tell the little kiosk because there's not a human involved anymore. You could tell the kiosk that you're checking in a bag. It would spit out your labels like Southwest does. And you just take those and hold on to them and never check in a piece of luggage. You could. You're right. You're right. Maybe that's what they did. That may be what they did. Yeah. All right. This, this is this is literally why I wanted to have this on the, the show because, yeah, it, just, it seems harder than that. Like you'd have to have some sort of evidence that you, they lo- actually lost your bag. Otherwise, people would be doing this all the time. Right. You know, $3,500 is not a small amount of money. That's a pretty significant check. And especially when you consider how, uh, I don't know if stingy is the right word, but airlines don't want to give you anything. They don't want to give you a refund for, you know, airplanes being late, for you missing their connections. They don't want to put you in a hotel. They don't want to do anything. And then to hear that, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we'll send you a $3,500 check. No, no big, no big deal. It seems like, yeah, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't fly with the rest of the way we all have experienced the nickel and diming of the air, of the airlines. I think that the, the thing that stood out the most to me, which is the most upsetting, is that the, there were two people involved and one was doing all the flying, but he was flying under an alias for like six years. How are you flying under? Yeah, how do you do that either? Yeah, that's equally baffling. Probably more more baffling. Yeah. How is that possible? Right? You got to have ID. What? He had a falsified passport, falsified license, driver's license. What was the ID? Because it's not. Not only do you have to do that at the well, if he's not checking in bags, you would have to do that there. But you would have to check in somewhere with the TSA to get. In through security, there's at least one checkpoint on ID, and I thought that went to a national database, right? So he must have been using somebody else's names or a whole bunch of other people's names to do that. Because I I know, and you you know, when when you buy a flight on Southwest or whatever airline you're flying on, it goes into a database. Like they know who you are, and that's where they kind of get picked out. Is you know. Me as a male, mostly, I think. And uh, if I'm traveling by myself and have a one-way ticket, I'm pretty much going to get slammed for a security check every single time. Uh, so you know TSA knows what's up and who's coming where. So how come TSA, who has a database, is not cross-linking this and saying, well, that's funny. Uh, this alias Bob Smith was traveling to uh, you know Miami last week, and now he's going to Portland or you know whatever that system was. It seems like you would cross over yourself, right? And you would create a, 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 a incompatible set of data that would go, "Huh, this person's in two places at the same time. Something's weird, right?" There's, that must have, and that, probably that's what tripped the system that they're using an alias as someone who actually traveled at the same time and it couldn't be in two places at the same time. And somebody wondered, like, "What the hell? What's going on?" Because evidently, this this would have gone on forever. When when were they going to find the end of this? Unless somebody turned them in, like their neighbor turned them in or ex-wife or something turned them in. How do you stop this process from occurring? I, I don't know. Successful over a long period of time. And you're, and you're right. I mean, and that's, I guess, where they said this was an intricate scheme. Because, but again, they didn't elaborate. So we're speculating. But yeah, because it seems like they had to probably falsify a lot of documents. Like, like you said, I mean, they scan your ID. I mean, how do you falsify that barcode on the back of an ID or... I mean, obviously counter counterfeiting. It seems like this goes pretty far into the like counterfeiting. Yeah, it has to. Or they had an inside, or like again, like they had somebody on the inside, 
letting them through security. Because that's that's your only holdup is showing the ID, someone at security going, boy, you don't look like <laughs> uh, Mary Smith because you're, you're Bob Smith, right? There's got to be some somebody is letting you through the system consistently at the same airport. Maybe. Maybe they have that suit that Arnold Schwarzenegger's character wore in Total Recall. You know, it was very convincing until it started malfunctioning. So I'll just go ahead and assume assume it was that. But yeah, I hope the details of this come out because this this seems like a really interesting. It'd be really interesting just to hear the way it unfolded. Um, you know, Amer- Americans love true crime, and it's always, of course, like these awful, gruesome murders and stuff. But Let's hear this one. I'm just curious, like how they were at, they managed to do this for so long because TSA does a good job. It's not easy to like. I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't say not easy. I've never tried to like. I just go through myself. Like, I'm not trying to do anything. I'm just trying to fly. But it's pretty rigorous, right? Like TSA does a good job. Like we've been pretty safe, you know. And so it seems like I said, it seems crazy that they were able to just do this unscathed for such a long time. Yeah, and I'm curious how they got caught in the end, but. Anyway, interesting story. Um, hopefully, there's some more of that that comes out out of the woodworks. Uh, moving on, Airbus is continuing to explore wing tech, trying to see what the future holds. If they can increase uh, efficiency, you know, taking some um, some inspiration from you know the you know from nature, from eagle wings, all sorts of things. Um, Alan, this up next program from Airbus is this something that all these aviation companies are pretty much doing? I mean, is this this out of the ordinary? Why is this one making news? I think because of the amount of work that they're going to throw into different companies around Europe to support it. Like they've picked up different manufacturers. GKN is one of them. Spirit's another, it sounds like. So they've grabbed hold of all their sort of second tier suppliers to create this next generation and wing, even though we don't know that much about it in terms of what the design details are or what they're actually shooting for. The, I think the kicker is that there's going to be some aerospace economy going on because Airbus is pushing for a next generation of wing design. And I also believe that there's some sort of sticking it to Boeing and all this that Boeing's been dealing with a lot of 737 issues and they've been trying to get a, a 777 composite wing together. Uh, I, my guess is that Airbus is saying, well, your new 777 wing isn't all that hot. What Watch what we're going to do sort of uh, marketing scheme that's happening and that which is fascinating because i don't know if i would be kicking boeing when they're down because boeing can bite back you're right never put a you know an angry dog in a corner <laughs> because what it can do to you that's what it's starting to feel like like airbus slow down a little bit it's great that they're developing new technology actually and did you did you read about the technology they they were describing just the little bits that they put out there yeah and i think that makes sense because it it sounds like the question that they've been asking is why do we have the same wing when the conditions of the wing will change depending on the type of flight right like the the needs of your wing when you're taking off are very different than when you're at cruise altitude and are probably very different if you have like a side gust or you're coming into land so it seems like they've been asking the question how can we have the perfect wing that changes for all these different phases of flight. Did I kind of get that right? That's what my feeling on it was too. And I think they're looking at different ways of using control surfaces. Makes sense. Yeah. It does. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Cause they want to look at looking at spoilers, gust sensors, you know, the way the trailing edge can, can change depending on, you know, what, I guess, portion of the flight they're in. Um, so that, yeah, that's interesting. And that, and that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. There's been a lot of development roughly from the seven, eight, seven 
time period on in terms of the way that uh, like the ailerons <laughs> sit. If you actually watch some of these airplanes when they're in cruise flight, they actually change the shape of the wing to get it more efficient. But one of the things I thought was sort of the dog that's not barking about all this is that technology they're talking about in, um, in Spirit up in Scotland is stuff that Bombardier did up in Belfast 10 plus years ago. So a lot of this, this, a lot of this composite technology they're, they're speaking of is things that I saw a long time ago and were actually in production on the Airbus A220. So where is Belfast, which is Spirit Aerosystems, where's Spirit Aerosystems Belfast in this mix? They're nowhere to be found in this, and yet they, they were doing it 10 years ago. So it seems like this is like, uh, technology-wise, like 10-year-old-ish technology, which makes me wonder, like, what's Belfast Belfast up to? Like, what, if they were doing that 10 years ago, Belfast has had 10 years to develop, and Belfast is now working on some sort of UK-based autonomous aircraft from the news reports, they got some sort of autonomous aircraft they're building. Like, how much technology is in that? That's where the technology is. If you're looking around Europe, uh, in my opinion, a lot of the technology in the composites world is being done in Belfast, Northern Ireland. So we need to really keep our eyes on what Airbus is doing, but we also need to keep our eyes on what Belfast is doing because that's the next generation more than likely. All right. Speaking of, uh, you know, next generation, you know, it seems like business business flight is going to be the new big thing. And it seems like COVID has obviously pushed that trend where I think more and more companies are feeling safer, you know, with their own jet. Uh, they don't want to deal with, you know, the restrictions at the airport or whatever factors might be involved. But uh, biz, business jet deliveries topped 900 this year, which is the first time that number has been hit since uh, 2008 when uh, 1300 new jets were produced. So we talked about this maybe like six or eight months ago, a little bit. Um, and of course that trend where, you know, it's like, Hey, business jets are rebounding. And it seems clear that that's, that trend has come to fruition and business jet sales are still booming. Um, Alan, what, what makers or, you know, are going to be most benefiting from this or what do you think going forward? Is this trend going to stay the same or is when COVID cools off, hopefully sooner than later, uh, you know, completely, is this going to go back to a, a slump or is this here, this sort of a trend that's here to stay? The, the COVID drive is going to continue on for a while, I think, and that the the ability to get in and out of airports quickly and to do your business tasks, uh, because airlines are uh, packed full <laughs> and there's also fewer flights, that there's sort of, it takes longer to get across the country, at least in the United States, than it did two years ago. So you're restricted, which is putting pressure. When you put friction in the system like that, a lot of corporate owners or, or potential owners are going to look somewhere else to, to get to where they need to go because they're trying to conduct business. So the, that business jet community is going to grow. And even the turboprop community is going to grow. The King Airs of the world and Pilatus of the world are going to grow just because of the demand to get from A to B without running through uh, eight airports and be on the on the on an airplane all day. I, I think there's sort of a couple of winners in here right now. Uh, Honda Jet. I noticed that Honda Jet seems to be selling airplanes at a pretty good clip. Like uh, one of those sales people put out an announcement, like I sorted four airplanes in four weeks, which is really good. Uh, that guy's probably going to have a new boat pretty soon. And and I think Cessna, Textron are, are positioned to. You know, 
gather some significant marketplace because it kind of that on the smaller end of the business jet world and and, and the mid-sized business jet world. Obviously, the Gulf streams of the world are going to do great uh, just because they're just a premier quality top end product. They'll be doing just fine. There is a little bit of of of, of turmoil in the waters though right now, which is related to the administration's push to tax uh you know they're talking about a 3.2 trillion dollar bill which is going to be completely paid for it's going to cost american consumers zero that never has happened in the history of 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 the human race what they're going to do is start taxing corporations and people who make a lot of money which means that it pulls away from the ability to go buy a business jet which therefore lowers the possibility of someone having a job in the aerospace community so those kind of things you have to be careful about because if the, if the administration does go after that and uh, imposes and, and those new taxes on, on high income earners, that that business jet growth that you see right now can quickly disappear. You like to be in a situation where you're producing over a thousand airplanes a year. That that's kind of a sweet spot. Plus, you need to get back up in there just to keep those businesses healthy. You do. Those are good paying jobs. Question for you. Is it really individuals buying these business jets or is it corporations buying these business jets? Because the tax, you know, the tax increases are proposed on individuals. I'm sure there's some business tax changes that are that are coming, but I'm not sure any have been announced yet. But is it a personal purchase or is this more of a corporate purchase? I think a lot of owners actually throw the uh, purchase of a jet under a corporation, so to speak. But a lot of of uh, quote unquote corporate jets are done by individual owners just the way that it is and taxation wise uh if i let me give you the probably the good example if i'm an attorney and i'm making two million a year and i need to travel for business back and forth i could actually probably afford a, a jet but even though i may put the the purchase of the jet under a corporation heading i may set up a little business in which only owns that jet I'm still paying taxes on that money. That money has to come from somebody somewhere. And that's that's the kind of people who get hit, the doctors and the lawyers that are making that kind of cash as individuals. And uh, they're going to have a reduction in their income. Therefore, they can't buy the jet. Not not all these. It's not it's not General Motors buying jets all the time. Most of those business jets are for sort of medium sized companies uh, that have uh, you know, conduct business like in the midwest like they're flying from texas to uh, new mexico they're flying from alabama to north carolina those are the kind of businesses and that's where the airlines uh, the, the airlines don't really service very well where a corporate business jet makes a lot of sense and those are the those are the people who are going to get hit with those taxes and we've seen it before and this isn't the first time we've gone through this it's back in the 70s and you know this is a cyclical thing with administrations and it, it, the airplane industry gets hit pretty hard and you wonder why there's you know large spans of time where the airplane industry struggles well they're sort of self-imposed right it's it's, it's all economics yeah well uh kind of along the same lines um i want to talk a little bit about old aircraft versus new on obviously you could buy a new business jet right off the line uh, would have top of the line everything right safety features everything uh, but there's still a lot of aircraft still in service who are quite old. And unfortunately, there was a older aircraft uh, just recently, an AN-26, it's a turboprop that crashed in far east Russia. Uh, unfortunately, no survivors on that. Uh, there's only six people on board, um, but they went down. And they said that that aircraft it's, uh, was typically it was built by Antonov, 
typically between 1969 and 1986. So we're talking about a, a jet that's at, at, you know, at its youngest, 35 years old, and potentially up to, you know, about 50 years old. So, I mean, is that a less safe aircraft? I mean, is this common that older, older planes like this are still in operation? Do they have a higher crash rate? Or, I mean, is it, how far have we come, I guess, is, is part of my question. Because I, I know there's a lot of aircraft, like 747s are, it's a pretty old, you know, style, right? And there's still a lot of those kicking and they upgrade them and keep the, keep the bones. But um, is, there, is there a massive difference in safety between an older aircraft and a brand new one? There is in terms of the engineering that went into, into, went into them when they were first designed. There's, there's a, a huge difference between those two. Uh, and I think it mostly has to do with systems. Uh, the, the amount of detail we put on aircraft systems now is way higher than it was 30, 40 years ago. And uh, the amount of rigor that goes into the design of those systems is much higher. So, yeah, I, I think safety-wise, I think it, you can show that. Airframe-wise, it's hard saying, right? An airframe is sort of a different beast uh, because if you're maintaining the airframe and you're watching for those things that are likely to happen, cracks, uh, failed fasteners, uh, uh, weird defects that show up structurally over time. If you're doing your standard maintenance on the airframe, you should be able to catch those and keep the airframe in pretty good condition. Same thing for the power plants. If you're doing the regular maintenance like you should be and you're inspecting it like you should be, then those those items can live a long time. So when we see aircraft issues Today, when you see crashes today, it's really one of two things, because um, the third one is just small. It's some sort of mechanical uh, failure from a maintenance issue, typically, or it's pilot error. Those are your two big ones. Usually, the design is not involved with it very often. And if it is, a, it, because those aircraft have been around a long, long enough period of time, any design issues are usually fleshed out in the first five years. Would have been found. Or, yep. Yeah. Yeah, and addressed, right? And I, I think we we see we still see in certain parts of the world where maintenance may not be as um, economically viable that maintenance steps get s skipped or there's been a reduction in the maintenance and thoroughness and then accidents happen. So design-wise, airplanes still pretty solid. A lot of airplanes like the B-52 have been flying a long time, 70 years or so. And then we have airplanes that are relatively new with with problems, right? And and I think the, the, the deciding factor is really maintenance anymore. Yeah, well, uh, way to beat me to the segue, Alan. But yeah, I mean, speaking of the B-52, uh, you know, started being built in the 1950s by Boeing. And it's an interesting design because it almost looks like a glider, like one of those you'd throw as a kid. Like it's got a, because the wings are so long and, you know, the fuselage is also long. It just has a different shape than like a commercial airliner where you have the kind of thicker fuselage relative to the wings, um, just looks different. Uh, almost looks like a rudimentary design, but you know, the B-52 has been around for a long time. It has a crazy payload. It has a crazy, uh, you know, um, you know, distance capacity. It can fly over 8,800 miles before refueling. Um, but it looks like they are continuing to upgrade over the years, obviously. And so, uh, Rolls-Royce has won, I guess the latest contract to supply their F-130 engine to the next generation of, of B-52. So what's what's unique about the F-130 engine? And um, this is a big deal for for Rolls-Royce. They're pretty excited about it, obviously. Sure they are. And I I think if 
in different times, I think GE or Pratt and Whitney win that contract. And it feels like to me that this, if I remember correctly, that the, the sort of the bidding on this started a couple of years ago. So these, these engine purchases don't happen overnight. My gut tells me based on like the, the, what's happening with submarines, uh, where the United States is selling nuclear submarines to Australia and has sort of forged some alliance with the United Kingdom, that this is part of that alliance uh, where France is somehow getting dumped. But we're, we're now hooked up with the United Kingdom and Australia. My guess is, is to thwart off China a little bit. So when economic, when, when uh, military policy or uh, sort of global policies come together, it has a trickle-down effect where, uh, and not saying Rolls-Royce is the wrong company. I'm, they make great products. Let's just face it. Rolls-Royce has always made great products. That the choice in engine manufacturers is one sort of keep keep competition. You don't want to have one die off. So you want to provide each of the engine manufacturers with some capacity and, and contracts to keep them alive. The second is sort of because of global economics. Do you want to help out your friends in the United Kingdom or not? Yes, evidently that seems to be the case right now. Uh, and just same thing like like Boeing's going to be building uh, some airplanes, some drone airplanes down in Australia. Again, like that really makes no sense. And in, in, until you think about the broader context, that they're, they're not playing a, a, a lowest cost game at the moment. They're playing a, a more global game of we need to protect ourselves from the encroaching China threat militarily. And how do we do that? Well, we need to build some alliances up. How do we do that? We start working together. And it feels like this Rolls-Royce B-52 is sort of related to Taiwan and things that are happening in the in the seas off China. Don't you start to see that a little bit? Because if you start connecting all the things that are happening simultaneously, it just feels like something's happening militarily. Yeah, I guess I could see that. I'm, I'm certainly not as uh, as tuned into it as you, but... But yeah, I, th- I think you're right. It's you have to kind of take some of these things in like a more of a global context, perhaps. Yeah, I, I think that's what's happening, and I, we ought to keep our eye on it because, you know, the one thing about Australia, and we have our podcast with our friends in Australia, with Rosemary Barnes, uh, that there seemed to be a lot more interaction between the United States and Australia over the last six months, and I remember than the previous five years. So, uh, more of this to come. It looks like. All right. So in our EVTOL segment today, uh, first up, uh, interesting news from the Smithsonian Institute that they're going to be, well, A, reopening the quote unquote castle, uh, which is the um, Smithsonian Arts and Industries building on the DC Mall. And that's one of the oldest buildings on the National Mall. I mean, I have a, uh, a DC map hanging in my, in my house and uh, it's from 1840 or something. And the castle is one of the few monuments on there. Um, or buildings on there. Um, and so maybe it's 1890. Either way, it's very old. It's before they even built the Tidal Basin, did all that dredging work. Um, and this has been closed for 14 years. So it's exciting that that building is going to be back open for, as, a, as a museum people can tour. But in that, they have this new uh, futures exhibit, which will run from November when the uh, museum reopens till July of 2022. That will feature a Bell Nexus Air taxi. And this is one of the, you know, Bell's, Bell Textron's prototypes. Um, and what I find interesting about this, and of course, you need someone to be in this exhibit, if this is what you want to talk about, you know, the future of air travel, which is cool. Um, 
But this this prototype may, might not ever come to fruition, like many of the ones in this huge, gigantic race to commercial viability and to get these out in the air. I think that's what's so interesting about it is, and maybe that's part of the exhibit that's like, look, we got to push the bounds of technology for the future. And some of these prototypes, of course, we all know, like the auto industry show, showcases prototypes every year and we never see many of those cars, right? And so maybe this is that sort of that same sort of thing. Like, hey, let's celebrate aerospace and some of the cool things we're doing to push the limits. Is that is that kind of how you see this, Alan? I do. I, I think, I, Dan, I didn't realize that the, the castle building had been closed that long. I, I guess I haven't been down there in a long time. 14 years. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Or six, six, 16 years, maybe. And you're right. It's one of the sort of the preeminent uh, buildings in Washington, D.C., just because it, that's the first Smithsonian building was that that castle building. Everything else has grown from there. Huh. So the, the eVTOL aspect is fascinating because I, you remember back in the Wright brothers days that um, one of the heads of the Smithsonian was was involved in trying to be the first to flight powered flight if you remember <laughs> you wouldn't remember it but if you look back at the history books there was a bunch of work done at the Smithsonian of trying to launch an aircraft which then plummeted into the Potomac right next door to the Smithsonian there uh, so the Smithsonian itself has been involved in early flight things forever, right? So the, the, the Smithsonian and then the Aerospace Museum is sort of an outgrowth of that inv involvement and uh, in trying to beat the Wright brothers. But anyhow, so it's, it's interesting now to sort of kind of tie the loop together. Again, we're, we're getting the Smithsonian involved in some more modern aircraft experiences and Bell, I think someone at Bell on the marketing side ought to get a get a little bit of a pay raise or being taken out to dinner because getting that aircraft into the Smithsonian is huge PR, huge PR. All the other eVTOL makers would kill for that spot, right? Just because it's such a nationally known place, you're going to put hundreds of thousands of people through that building when it opens up again. There'll be a million people through there easily. Uh, so the marketing opportunity is huge, and again, and you're right. You know, this this EV tall is never going to see the light of day in terms of production. I don't think, based on sort of the, it's an early sort of an early prototype sort of aircraft. But man, it does bring it to the highlight of, of yeah, this this is the future, and the Smithsonian's been about the past, but also about the future. So they're bringing these two things together, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and you wonder if if the connection between Bell, because this the Air and Space Museum, which is very close by, it's you know two blocks away, they have the X one plane, which was, you know, a, a Bell aircraft. So maybe they're like, hey, we already got one Bell aircraft. Like, let's call Bell back up and grab a grab a second one. It's always about who you know, right? So maybe uh, maybe that had something to do with it. But um, but yeah, Bell's had a you know place in in history. So it's uh, it's cool to see that that go. And and yeah, I think the whole idea of just showing these prototypes and like what the future holds. That seems like what that exhibit's going to be all about. So seems like a cool thing coming soon uh, here to the DC area. I'll definitely have to stop in there. I'm, I'm excited to see that castle because, you know, if you imagine if you lived here, I've only lived here two years, but if you lived here since 2004 and the thing's been closed the entire time, seven, 16, 17 years, and now it's opening up like it's, it's a long time to be closed, but uh, anyway, so moving on, uh, Airbus is also returning to the EV, EVTOL space. This has some people uh, in the industry kind of scratching their heads, wondering why, because the, you know, the original city Airbus didn't seem to go very far. The Vahana program was shut down after, you know, like they had their little moment and called it a success. And they're like, 
this was as far as we wanted to go. Um, and now they're jumping back in the ring. I mean, Alan, what's your take on this? This is weird. I don't know if you watched the multi-hour presentation that Airbus had online. They had a, like a webinar event uh, about a week or so ago. And I tried to sit through that, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't figure out what the point was. Uh, and and I'm I'm interested. I, I, I'm a target audience for them. I, I think Airbus is doing some really cool stuff. But that one, I couldn't figure out what the point was besides sort of claiming their stake to sort of two things, um, electric aircraft and then hydrogen-powered aircraft, which, which is part of it. So it's mostly about a cleaner economy, a cleaner uh, uh, fuel-burning system or, or you know something that doesn't emit a lot of uh, CO2 and other, other uh, emissions. And from an Airbus standpoint, I don't know if they have to even make that case. Like everybody knows that fuel efficiency is – number one priority in on any sort of airbus airplane that's why the a320 neo is doing so well because it's so fuel dang fuel efficient so i i you know airbus doesn't need to show their credentials everybody knows what those are i kind of wonder though and and this wasn't the play when i went on the webinar but i kind of wondered like is this an airbus helicopter uh, which is a business right they, they, they bought eurocopter many years ago is it an airbus helicopter support thing like Hey, all these little EV tow companies are running around doing this thing, and yet we got a helicopter company which could make an EV tow. Why are we not in that marketplace? If it's going to be so big and massive, well then, and we have the engineers, we have the technology, we could pull it off in in a year to come out with something that can match a I don't know a Beta, Joby, a Whisk, or whatever. That wouldn't be very hard for Airbus to spend money to go do that. I guess the question is. How serious are they, and is their entrant, entrance into that marketplace uh, a, a valuable uh, component of that? Because, Dan, did, did, did you look at see the airplane like, huh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It just didn't look very efficient. Maybe it's just a prototype. Maybe it's just something they're throwing out there to make Boeing upset. You know, There's so many angles to this, it's, it's hard telling what Airbus is thinking right now because it, the messaging was, wasn't very clear. It's a sleek looking design, like for someone like I'm not an aircraft engineer. So, uh, you know, my takes are pretty amateur, obviously. And but it looks sharp. And of course, like you said, they've got good engineers. They've got good marketing. They've got a lot of things. They have a lot of resources. So but one of the things that stuck out to me was that and we talked about this a bit in the past is that it was probably it's probably a wise choice for a lot of companies to just wait and see for a little bit and say, let's let all these other people duke it out in the ring. And then when they've sort of like killed a bunch of each other off and some designs are starting to win out, maybe then we'll jump in and say, okay, it looks like these are the ones that are, this is sort of the style that's viable. And it's like, let, let other companies do your R and D for you and, and build buzz. And let's not spend any marketing. Let's let Joby spend marketing. Let's, let's let Archer spend money on marketing. Let's make let all these other people build the industry. And then since we have clout, like Airbus is a big name, they have a lot of resources. Then they could just jump in and take over. I mean, Apple has done that with lots of different products, right? I mean, Adobe does that with products. They'll just went, oh yeah, okay, this company's doing well. They've got this cool thing that let's just add that to our suite and adios, right? You know, if Apple makes a name a product, they immediately become a gigantic player in that market because they have the clout. So in my mind, maybe maybe this is what they've been doing. They've been just sort of waiting and wait and see and like, okay, it's our time now. We're gonna we're gonna jump in this because you couldn't wait too long because it takes so much so long to to develop one of these things, right? And so much money and certification so long. So you couldn't wait forever. Uh, 
Um, but maybe that's what they did. I don't know. That's my speculation. But uh, you're right. It's a little bit different. Definitely has a, has a winged helicopter feel. Looks sleek. Uh, but yeah, it's, it a lot has a lot of people scratching their heads for sure. Um, and then last on the docket here today, even, even Bristow are entering into a partnership. Um, and uh, Bristow is ordering up to 100 EV TOLs from them. Of course, EVE is the urban air mobility uh, arm of Embraer. And, uh, and their design is also sort of one of these sort of, um, I don't know, Alan, it looks like they've got open air propellers. It seems like a design kind of similar to Volocopter, but without the, looks like the guards surrounding where the, you know, Volocopter has that sort of like feels like antlers. Um, Eve looks like, strikes me as very similar to Volocopter's design, kind of helicopter-ish with a lot of, uh, you know, small propellers. Um, I mean, what strikes you about this deal between even Bristow? Because Bristow is a well-known, obviously, uh, helicopter company. I think the the Bristow piece is the smart piece here in terms of the economics. So Bristow services uh, provides helicopter services to offshore oil rigs and all ambulance services. Sort of those typical helicopter missions that are difficult and you may not want to own the helicopter. Uh, and so Bristol is the expert in operating the helicopters and, and keeping the maintenance up on them. So you'd, if I'm shell oil, I don't need to have my own fleet. I just hire Bristow or somebody to do that. So the, the inner, so this is becoming very fascinating because you see the market uh, separation that's happening between the, the manufacturers. So Embraer is basically saying we have a cargo market and we have a sort of a people carrying work environment, offshore, oil rigs, ambulance service kind of marketplace. That's where they see the future in, in, in urban air mobility. Then you've got the Joby of the world, which is saying Uber is the right way to go. Then you have Beta, which is up in Vermont, which talking about having a connection with UPS and delivering cargo, like your Amazon packages sort of thing. So there's like this, this market s separation that's happening uh, that every uh, aircraft company is actually going after a different segment, which is weird, right? Usually they're all going after the same pie, but they've seen to divide up the pie into logical portions, and they're going after that particular piece of the pie. I guess the question is, how big is each piece, and how are you going to make your aircraft company pay for itself? Don't you, don't you see that happening? Or it's just everybody's finding a little tiny niche, and they're kind of focusing on that one? Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of this being used for offshore oil rigs, and, you know, wind turbines. I mean, you could see a wind turbine, like jack of vessel that's going to be out at sea for quite a while installing wind turbines, needing to shuttle people back and forth quickly and effectively, right? And obviously, like the these EV2Ls will have less disruption, like less airflow. Maybe that's not an important detail, but they're not going to have quite the downforce as a helicopter, quite as uh, loud, like quite as disruptive. Probably a, a minor, minor detail, but um, but yeah, it seems like there's those are good ways to test a, a certainly viable market because you don't have to convince the American people, you know, like like you will for Uber. Like you have to convince people that this is a good, safe way to travel. Whereas this market already exists. Like yeah, we got to send people out offshore. Like we know we need this, so let's do it this way instead of the old way. I think that makes a lot of sense. We don't have to worry so much about getting people to to adopt it. Yeah, and I, this is the interesting piece of this uh, market as it keeps shifting around is who's going to be there five years from now? 
Now, you may have a couple of them certify and actually get to a production sense of an airplane, but they they all can't survive if they don't have a vibrant marketplace. And I think some of the marketplaces are a little sketchy right now, whereas you know the offshore oil rigs and, like you're saying, the offshore wind turbine is going to be a pretty big market in, in terms of the in terms of revenue, not in terms of the number of aircraft sold, but in terms of revenue. So there, there's some interesting games going on financially right now. Yeah, so we'll definitely have to keep an eye on that. And it'll, it will it really will be interesting to see how that all, all that plays out. Because again, some of these aircraft manufacturers, they need to sell them and like get their money back and, and get viable. So it, it'd be quite possible to have different uses even within the same company where, hey, let's just sell a bunch to Bristow to, you know, get our, our balance sheet in order, and then maybe we'll tackle, you know, true, like in within city urban area mobility later, you know, start commercial and then go, um, yeah, and then go more consumer. So, right. I think in Baird, of all the companies in the world, in terms of EVTOL's urban air mobility knows that they have an internal built-in marketplace in Brazil. They, they know that. So this whole thing makes, makes total sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Struck Airspace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, and leave us a review. We definitely appreciate it. It helps the show grow. So if you've been a longtime listener, be sure to give us a four or five stars, whatever you feel like. But be honest, leave us a review. We'd appreciate it. And we will see you here next week on the Struck Podcast. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.